Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Luke chapter 12. We're going to do verses 13 through 34 today. We're going to talk about Jesus' teaching on riches and greed and giving to the poor. Now, in the first 12 verses of this chapter, Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples for the coming persecution from the Jewish Sanhedrins, Sanhedrins and such after he was killed, crucified, and resurrected. And in the midst of that, he interrupts that teaching because of what happens here in verses 13 and 14. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, it was common for rabbis to settle such disputes. They were kind of like lawyers back then. This was a legal dispute. It was probably the older brother who was supposed to have a double portion of the inheritance. For example, if you had three children, the estate would be divided into four portions. The oldest child would get two portions, and then the other two children would get the other two portions, and probably the older brother got shafted somehow. But anyway, it was a petty financial dispute, not petty to the person, but compared to the overall scheme of things, the establishment of the kingdom of God, it was petty. And Jesus wasn't going to take his time to answer that. And he said, friend, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, that's not my job. I might be a Jewish rabbi, but I got better things to do than talk about that stuff. Now, you might think that was a little rude. No, it wasn't rude because the man was selfish. And this is why Jesus started teaching on greed, to warn against greed. And it had a an auxiliary function of preparing the disciples for the poverty that they were going to be facing, the lack of income because they were, they were going to be persecuted. And Jesus said, don't you worry about that. I can, I can take care of you. I'll take care of every financial need you got. So he's teaching against greed and he's talking about provision and supply for his disciples. The NIV study Bible says that it was clear that this man's request was materialistic and selfish. The man had paid no attention to what Jesus had been saying. Well, that might be true, but I do have a problem because it says in verse 1 that Jesus was talking to his disciples. I never, we, I never can tell where he turned and started speaking to the crowd. But at some point he must have been because it says someone from the crowd said to him, so that means the crowd was around. They must have been listening. So, so at some point the man heard what Jesus had been saying, uh, what Jesus had been saying. And, of course, what Jesus had been saying, he was talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be forgiven for that. He's talking about acknowledging the Son of Man will acknowledge you before heaven if you acknowledge him before heaven. All kind of spiritual stuff. You're worth more than the sparrows of the field. Don't fear those who can kill the body. He was talking serious stuff, and this man said, Jesus, divide my inheritance for me. So Jesus was not being rude. He was just answering the man in the way he deserved to be answered. Here's an interesting quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. The influence of religious teachers in the external relations of life has ever been immense when only the indirect effect of their teaching, but whenever they intermeddle directly with secular and political matters, the spell of that influence is broken. Ooh. I think of Christians in politics. I love politics, and I think politics are very important, but boy, it is real quick. Politics just sucks the spirituality out of the people who get involved in it. I know because I've been there. It's real hard to think spiritual when you're trying to grind the opposition party into the ground. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed. 
because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And you can read all the biographies of rich people, biographies of rich people, watch the biography show on A&E, and you will see that most rich people are totally miserable. I mean, <laughs> if I could just randomly pick a rich person's autobiography and make a bet with you for $100 that his life would end up a total disaster, I'm going to win every time. You're going to lose. One's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. I was just watching a biography of Donald Trump, who, of course, is extremely rich. And the interviewer, about 20 or 30 years ago, was interviewing his first wife, Ivana, and said, Do you have all that you have? Do you have everything that you want now? And she hesitated, and she hemmed, and she hauled, and she says, Well, well, of course she didn't. She didn't have, and she's about to lose the Donalds. Her family busted all up. And she worked like a dog, running a big hotel, being the mean businesswoman, racking up money, even outshining Donald Trump at times. What good does all that do if you lose your life? Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Then he, Jesus, told them a parable, told the crowd a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is just another way of saying you can't take it with you when you go. Very simple parable to understand. Speaking of parables, why did Jesus always speak in parables? Well, they're very effective. They're easy to remember. They use familiar scenes. They clarify Jesus' teaching. And sometimes they included hidden meanings. Maybe not in this parable, but sometimes they included hidden meanings, which encouraged seekers for truth to seek for more truth and those hidden mean, meanings were concealed for unbelievers so the unbelievers couldn't use Jesus's teaching against him to get him prematurely caught by the Jewish rabbinical authorities and thus short-circuiting his messianic mission the synoptics have about 30 of these parables if you just learned Jesus's 30 parables you'd know most of his teachings right there you'd have more wisdom than Solomon ever had uh, parables were very popular among the Jews, amongst Eastern nations in general, especially amongst the Jews, which makes it ironic that a lot of times Jews couldn't figure out the parables because they didn't have a heart to understand, ears to hear, and eyes to see. Now, Jesus calls this man a fool who laid up treasures on earth but, but was not rich toward God, didn't worry about spiritual treasures in heaven. He calls him a fool. That's a very strong word according to the NIV study Bibles. Now, Jesus... He didn't mind calling people fools. In Luke eleven forty, this is when he was eating at the Pharisee's house, and they complained because he, he didn't wash his hands before he ate. And he said, well, you know, what's so stupid? You know, you, you're dirty and filthy on the inside, but you wash the cup on the outside. And, and he says to the Pharisees, fools, didn't he, God, make the outside, make the inside too? He who made the outside, make the inside too? Fools? Ephesians 5.17, this is Paul talking. So don't be foolish. Don't be like a fool. But understand what the Lord's will is. So there's nothing wrong with calling somebody a fool if they are in fact a fool. And if your purpose is not to destroy them, but to rescue them from their folly. Which, of course, Jesus was doing with the Pharisees. He was trying to get them to repent. And, of course, Paul is talking to Christians. He's not trying to destroy Christians. He's trying to get them to fly right. Nothing wrong with calling people fools. But 
when you're a Pharisee and you call somebody else a fool, you're in danger of rock of the hellfire. That when Jesus said that, he was talking about people who had no compassion for the people they were calling fools and who were just trying to grind them down. So Jesus is, of course, not in danger of hellfire and judgment for calling someone a fool. Now, this parable talking about laying up money for yourself could be misinterpreted. For one thing, the Bible never says there's anything wrong with being rich. That wasn't the point of Jesus' parable. The point was he was rich only toward himself and not rich toward God. In other words, that's all he thought about was money, money, money. Now, if God blesses you and blesses your finances, there ain't nothing wrong with that. Abraham was one of the richest people in the Bible. God blessed him. Nothing wrong with that. But by golly, if that's all you think about is how you can make money and you never give any of it away to people who need it, like in the New Testament, it was poor people, widows and orphans, and itinerant ministers to spread the gospel. If you don't give your money to things like that and all you can think about is storing it up, you ain't ever going to be financially free. I don't care how much money you have. You'll buy more stuff, more boats, more airplanes, more mansions, more houses, more baubles, more toys, more computers, and they will make you more and more miserable because they cannot make you happy because you're ignoring God. You're a fool, as Jesus said. You store up riches for yourself and you're not rich toward God. Let me repeat that. You're a fool. Adam Clark says this, quote, Riches, though ever so well acquired, produce nothing but vexation and embarrassment. In fact, that documentary on Netflix I was watching about Donald Trump, this is a long 20, 30 years before he was elected president. And Rona Barrett, the the announcer, the TV announcer, the TV host, the TV presenter, she says, "Is it? do you like being rich? And Trump thought a minute and he said, well, being rich creates a lot of problems that you wouldn't have otherwise. <laughs> and that's, isn't that exactly right? That's what Adam Clark is saying here. Riches produce nothing but vexation and embarrassment. I think it was Fiddler on the Roof who said, God, curse me with this problem. I'm, riches are a curse. God, please curse me, or something to that, to that effect. Because everybody wants money. I remember somebody who was fi- middle class but financially tight trying to raise the young kids. And she lived next in, in the neighborhood of a lawyer who was doing very well, was making a lot of money. And she kept talking about how that little kid had nice clothes and how nice their life was. Now, I was a struggling lawyer at the time, and I knew how lawyers lived. And I'm thinking to myself, don't be envious of that guy. I feel sorry for the guy. Here's another quote from Adam Clark. Great possessions are generally accompanied with pride, idleness, and luxury, and these are the greatest enemies to salvation. Moderate poverty, as one justly observes, is a great talent in order to salvation, but it is one which nobody desires. What's that proverb that says, give me neither poverty nor riches? I call it the the middle class proverb. Just give me enough to get by comfortably. I don't want to be poor. And by the way, in my opinion, poverty is one of the worst curses except for sickness. It's probably the worst curse on the earth. You look at all these poor people living in these slums in, in the third world countries, or develop, excuse me, developing countries. You look at people like that or anywhere, in America too, for that matter, people that are very poor, it's terrible. You, you t- ask anybody who grew up poor how terrible it is. It's terrible. Poverty is a curse. So Jesus is not saying there's anything wrong about getting yourself out of poverty and, and supporting your family and getting them out of poverty. He's just saying that you better think about something else. And the problem is it's so easy to get consumed with not having any money and trying to get it. I've been there. I didn't have. I remember I was living in a 14 
what was that a uh it was a 12 12 foot wide something like 60 feet long or 40 feet long i don't remember it was a 10 can trailer and i had three kids stuffed in a room that was eight feet by eight feet i had two bunk beds up the side of one wall and a rollaway slab kind of device under the bottom bed and those three kids were crammed in there they couldn't move without hitting one of the other kids in the eye with a elbow and i thought this is really bad really bad so no poverty is not fun but i'll tell you what when you learn to give i give i'll tell you another story one time i was uh in financial trouble young with kids this actually might have been before i had kids i can't remember but it was i just got married had no money and a business i started was going down and so i said okay god going down so I said, I'm going to just give. I, somebody had a teaching about giving. It shall be given unto you. So I said, okay. So I'd get my bank account up to $100, and I, boom, I'd give it away. I, I mean, I was down to almost nothing. And I cannot tell you the miracles that happened. Within two years, I was out of debt. I was on my own and going. You know, I, I made it. And this is including time working at a home for neglected and, and and abused girls. I think I had two thousand. I think I remember correctly. I had two thousand dollars in my bank account, and I, after I got out of that failing business, and then I got out of the practice of law, went and worked with my wife in a home for neglected and abused girls for two thousand dollars for about what was it, six months or so. And after the six months, the two thousand dollars was gone. And I'm thinking, you know, this is terrible. So I have, I've got to start a new career besides law. And anyway, to make the long story short, I didn't have money for a long time. But God always provided. And I didn't have to go big for it either. I didn't borrow money from anybody. I didn't have any health insurance. I prayed for healing for my kids to be well. I finally would save up about $3,000 to cover any medical bills that might occur. And fortunately, every time they got had to go to the hospital, it might it'd wipe out my little fund sometimes. But it didn't ever go over. And uh, I paid with cash, and God always provided for my needs. And I learned through that. I, the being poor, not having money, and you have to depend on God, there is nothing better for your spiritual training. And I tell, I talk to a lot of young people. I say, I know you don't have any money. You're young. You're married. You just got kids, or you're about to get married. You don't have any money. That's the best thing in the world for you, because you'll learn how God always takes care of his children. Now, notice that this man here in the parable says, what should I do? I've got, I'm, I'm making a bunch of money. My crops are very productive. What should I do? Well, he didn't ask what he could do for God. He didn't ask what he could do for the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, and the naked. What shall I do for myself? And notice that he decided what to do without consulting God. He just started going out and building the crops. You know, what's that verse in James about who are you, old man, to go down to this city or that city and say, I'm going to start a business? You don't know. Your life is but a vapor. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And you don't. Just like in the parable, in fact, it says, it says, this very night your life is demanded of you. You don't know when you're going to go. So it might be good to pray before you invest money, before you spend money, before you save money, how you spend money. Pray about everything. I've always said that there's two things in this life that if you can figure the spiritual solution to these two problems, you've got it made. And that's dealing with the opposite sex and money. And sometimes I think money is even harder to deal with than men and women. Notice, and this translation kind of obscured it a little bit, he says the man stored up his money for many years so that he wouldn't have to worry, so that he could take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. 
as he says to himself. I'm going to take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy myself. That's the same thing as saying eat, drink, and be merry. The old Epicurean slogan, which as Adam Clark said, eat, drink, and be merry, was exactly the creed of those ancient atheists, the Epicureans. <laughs> Luke 12, verses 22 through 24. Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn. Yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Well, of course we are. God takes care of the birds. He's going to take care of us. Easier said than to walk in. That's for sure. You'll notice this teaching is very similar to the teaching on the Summer on the Mount, Matthew 6, 25 and 26. This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns that your Heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? It was ravens in Luke 12, and in Matthew 6, it was just the birds of the sky that were taken care of, but the point is the same. I'm sure Jesus was just teaching the same thing to different, a different audience. Now, he's speaking to the disciples here, and not the crowd. He's turned to the disciples, verse 22. Then he said to the disciples, don't worry about your life. And again, they needed to know that because they're about to undergo severe persecution as they start establishing the church of Christ. He says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about all where you're going to get your food from. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to supernaturally establish the church of Christ in this evil and sinful world. Luke chapter 12, verse 25 and 26. Can any of you, Jesus continues talking to his disciples, can any of you add a cubit to his height by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Well, of course, that's a rhetorical question. Nobody can add a cubit to his height. I should point out, that's the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. The NIV says, no, can any of you add a single hour to his life? And that makes more sense. Most people don't worry about adding a cubit to his height. They don't worry about that, but adding hours to your life, people do kind of tend to worry about that. There might be an exception to that. I know Chinese men tend to worry about that because there's not a single Chinese girl among in, in the whole country, 1.3 billion people, who will marry a man shorter than she is. It's incredible the way they think about it. And so there were services offered to where doctors could break the ankles of Chinese men and do some kind of surgical procedure and make their legs make their legs grow out to make them taller. That's the only time I've ever heard about people trying to be taller. The NIV puts the adding the cubit to his height in the margin. So it's a translation problem, maybe a textual problem, I don't know. Doesn't matter. The point is, worrying ain't going to fix it. There's a lot of things you can worry about that you have absolutely no control over and your worrying has absolutely no effect on. So what's the answer? Don't worry. Now, I'm a world's professional worrier. I'm a wor I, I remember one time... I had a neighbor, a man and a wife. His name was Dan. The wife's name was Patty. And Patty was like me. She worried all the time about everything. And so did I. Dan never worried about a thing. And my wife, Linda, she never worries about anything. So one time I told, I pointed this out to my friend Dan. And I said, he said, yeah, I said, you know, I wish I could be like you. You don't worry about anything. I'm like your wife, Patty. I worry about everything. And he said, Dan, I'm an amateur at not worrying. Your wife, Linda, is a professional, a professional non-worrier. And she is. What a wonderful place to be in. Let's go now to Luke 12, verses 27 through 28. Consider how the wildflowers grow, Jesus continues. They don't labor or spin thread. 
Yet I tell you, not even Solomon all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown to the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Now, the reason that grass is thrown into the furnace tomorrow is not worth much. It's just kind of stubble in the field, and that was the point. If God cares so much, if God manages to make that ugly grass beautiful by making the little wildfires grow in the grass, if he manages to make that ugly grass beautiful, how much more can he make you beautiful? He can give you clothes. You don't need to worry about it. And those wildfires don't even have to work for it. Excuse me, the grass doesn't even have to work for their clothing of the wildflowers. And the wildflowers themselves are pretty. Because it says, consider how the wildflowers grow. Wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet Solomon was not adorned like one of those wildflowers. In other words, the wildflower itself is prettier than King Solomon. And King Solomon was one of the richest kings of Israel. He had all these fancy kingly clothes, but they don't compare to that pretty wildflower. So there's two points in this parable. The wildflowers are beautiful, and also the grass is adorned with the beautiful wildflowers. And then he says, okay, now if I can do that and you don't believe me that I'm going to take care of your clothing, you are a little faith. You don't have any faith. You have little faith. Jesus, I love that phrase. I think it occurs about, I think I looked it up one time about six times in the New Testament. You have little faith. Peter starts sinking in the water. Peter, you have little faith when he's walking on the water. I'm telling you, you could have a lot of faith and Jesus would still look at you and say, you have little faith. He expected us to have a whole lot more faith than we've got. By the way, that is how all heresies pick on one. It's just like cults. Heresies are like cults. They pick on the weakness in the church, and then they try to provide solutions to that weakness, and they seduce people. Well, the faith message is like that. There is so much lack of faith in the church, and so people gravitate toward this heresy. And I won't get into all the details about how it's a heresy, but the, but they, the faith message is speaking to a lack in the church. We don't have enough faith. You don't need Kenneth Copeland or Kenneth Hagin to tell you about having faith. Just look what Jesus said. Oh, you of little faith. He expects you to have faith. This again is a similar teaching as in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 28 and 29. Why do you worry about clothes? Look how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon all his splendor was adorned like one of these. Same teaching. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible translates wildflowers as wildflowers. The NIV Study Bible has lilies. It's the same thing. Lilies represent flowers generally. It's just a translation issue. Let's go to Luke 12, verse 29 through 31. Don't keep striving for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Now, see, Jesus doesn't expect you, in forgetting your mad lust for riches, he doesn't expect you to be poor. He doesn't expect you to not be provided for, because he promises right here, these things will be provided for you. What things? Well, the clothing he mentioned. He mentions food. He mentions drink. In other words, your basic necessities of life. These things will be provided for you. That's why you're not supposed to worry and add and try to add an hour to your life. That's why you're not supposed to worry because these things will be provided for you. And we don't. We need to not forget that. He says, "Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious." In this phrase. The Gentile world, that means all non-believers, they certainly eagerly seek for all these things. That, that, the drive for money is one of the most fundamental drives of the human race. And Jesus is saying, that's okay, let them long for all that, but your Father knows that you need these things. You're human, you need these things. Don't, I'm not, Jesus is saying, I'm not saying that you don't 
need these things and you should just forget about making money. Of course not. He said, but God will provide all that thing, but don't put your heart on it. Your treasure, you need to be rich toward God with your treasure in heaven. This again is parallel to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 31 through 33. He says the same thing. So don't worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for the idolaters eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Now here's an interesting thing. Verse 31, Jesus tells his listeners, his disciples actually, he's talking to his disciples, but seek his kingdom. Why would Jesus tell his disciples to seek his kingdom since they already had his kingdom? Well, the answer to that is Christians should speak, should seek spiritual benefits of the kingdom rather than the material benefits of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying according to the NIV Study Bible, and that makes sense. Seek his kingdom, seek the spiritual things of his kingdom, and these material things will be provided for you. I always say the answer to every financial problem is spiritual. You find the spiritual root of the problem and the material solution will be at hand if you're a Christian following Jesus, a disciple. All right, here's another parallel passage of this. Well, excuse me, let me read this first. Luke 12, verses 32 through 34, and this is the last three verses of our passage here today. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Your father delights to give you the kingdom. And, of course, the kingdom includes the material benefits of the kingdom, too, as well as the spiritual. Don't be afraid, little flock. In other words, you don't need to be afraid of not having food or drink or clothes. Don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of poverty. Because, why? Your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes in and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus calls them a little flock. The interesting thing about that phrase there in the Greek, it's a little, little flock. It's a double diminutive, as Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. Ta micron poimenion. Poimenion is little flock, and micron is micro, small, a small little flock. A little, little flock. Jesus' first disciples weren't many. They were just 12 of them he's talking to. So, and he knows that they're going up against two of the greatest powers that they would have to have to deal with, the Jewish kingdom and the Roman Empire, the greatest empire that the world ever seen. That's what they were going to go up against. And he says, don't be afraid, little flock. Your father delights to give you the kingdom. The establishment of Christianity has got to be one of the most miraculous things in, in the history of the planet Earth. It's a miracle the kingdom ever got established considering the opposition and the hatred that was exhibited toward Jesus. The only explanation for it is the power of the Holy Spirit. No other explanation. Now, if you're not afraid of having your food supplied, you're going to have money that you can and possessions that you can sell and give to the poor. So, and this is how you know that you're rich toward God. Is Are you giving money away? Do you give money? If you're not giving, then you're holding on to money too much. And I don't mean a tithe. The tithe is an Old Testament concept. I mean cheerful giving, which very often can be more than 10%. Jesus uses an analogy here. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. Old money bags tend to develop tears in the bottom, and you put gold and silver coins in the money bag, and the gold and silver coins fall out on the ground, and you lose your money. And the point is, is that money doesn't last here on earth, whereas it lasts forever in heaven. It's inexhaustible in heaven. You make a lot of money, and people come steal it. Oh, I've had money stolen from me. Happens. No moth destroys. Back then, the 
ancients used rich clothing, silk, and such to store wealth, and a moth would destroy a cloth. It's like I got friends that have gold, and they always got to worry about where to put it. Well, if we put it here and bury it, we might forget it's there. Well, if we put it in the in the house and the house burns down, well, it'll melt. How are you going to separate it out from the debris of the house? Well, we better put it in a safe. Well, if you put it in a fireproof safe, the it has to be a certain kind of safe that's too light and people can pick the safe up and carry it out. I forgot the details. I looked this up one time. But it's a hassle. <laughs> it's a hassle putting, I don't care how much, where you got your money, somebody can come steal it on earth. The parallel passage in Matthew 6 says that rust will not destroy it too. That rust could refer to vermin in the grain. It could refer to mildew on crops or fungus in a cloth because gold obviously doesn't rust. I've always been kind of puzzled by that phrase, but this is what John Gill says, how you explain the the word there. The point is, no matter how you store your wealth, it can go real fast. There was no Roman proverb about a, a Roman god. His name was Plutus. He was the Roman god of wealth. He was a lame god. He couldn't walk very well. He would walk real slow, but he had wings too. Well, if you were looking at Plutus coming towards you, wealth, the god of wealth, if you saw him coming towards you, he was limping. He was barely moving. And then when he got to you and then he got past you and you watched him, his wings would start flapping. He'd fly away. <laughs> that's a great myth because that's what money will do. It's You work and 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 then bam, it's gone. James 5, 2. James is speaking against evil rich people who are trying to store up money and not give it to the poor. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. That's how you get your riches corrupted. Your garments, which is your store of value, eaten up with moths, no good. James was probably quoting Jesus here, or alluding to Jesus' teachings. Where your heart is, so will your treasure. Where your treasure is, so your heart will be. We have a similar expression, put your money where your mouth is. In other words, what I'm talking about is, if I really care about it, that's where my money's going to. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with Romans, excuse me, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34, as Jesus teaches on wealth. We'll pick it up next audio in chapter 12, verses 35 through 36. He's going to continue with his idea, you've got to be ready for his coming, which I assume is his coming in Jerusalem, in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70, because he's preparing his disciples for the persecution that's coming from the Jews. So we'll see you next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.